The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. Let's continue in our worship service together hearing God's word from Psalm 147. Praise the Lord. For it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcast of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He he casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He grows. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beast their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes the winds blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Well, the year was 1961. It was July. And the 38 players of the Green Bay Packers began their first day of training camp with their coach, Vince Lombardi. The prior season had ended ended in a heartbreaking loss to the Philadelphia Eagles after blowing a lead in the fourth quarter of the NFL championship game. And so when the players came in to start training camp, they expected to immediately begin where they had left off to work on how to advance their game and learn fancy new ways to win championships in this new season. And when they sat down, Vince Lombardi held up a football. And he said infamously, gentlemen, This is a football. One of the classic, if you've never heard the quote, well, now you have. And then he had everyone open up their playbooks, and starting on page one, they began to learn the fundamentals. Blocking, tackling, throwing, catching, the very basics. And it was not what these players expected who were at the top of their game. Well, guess what happened? They hyper-focused on the fundamentals and allowed them to win the NFL championship game that season, 37 to nothing against the Giants. They went on to win five NFL championships in seven seasons, and he never coached a team with a losing season after that, and they never lost a playoff game again. Gentlemen, this is a football. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is a worship service. What's the chief end of man? 
Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Let's try that again. What is the chief end of man? You can look in your bulletin. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You see, we're going back to the basics this summer. The chief end of man, this is what we were made for. In the Psalms, we learn the rudiments, the rhythms, the vocabulary of praise. Athanasius, this great early church father, and from which we get a lot of the Nicene Creed, he has this famous quote about the Psalms where he says, most of the Bible speaks to us, but the Psalms speak for us. And they both are true. But for many of us, we're still smarting from some defeat, some hurt, some brokenness, something that hinders our worship, much like the Green Bay Packers come into training camp in July 1961. And so we have to remember this psalm. And let's first consider the context of the psalm. If you look at verse 2 and verse 3, you see the connection. We usually just jump to verse 3 and pull that verse out and say, that's a great verse. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds, which is true. But the prior verse says he builds up Jerusalem and gathers the outcast of Israel. You see, God's people weren't singing in Babylon. And those passages we read in Scripture this morning were about this group called the Chaldeans that are going to come and they're going to take you down to an, another country. And when they got down there, they weren't singing, were they? They were sorrowful. They were miserable. And they were told in Psalm 137, where the psalmist wrote, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. And on the willows there, we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? You see, and this is where John Piper, I like his message on this. He says, there are seasons of suffering that are too painful, even for songs of lament. There are rare times like that, where time has to pass, and the day will come where there's sufficient emotional resources for the sad songs. And the sad songs often minister to us the most. You know, like the lament we sang this morning, there's a, there was a purposeful, we sing the laments because we mourn in this life. There are difficult things. And even as you work through the Psalms, most of them are laments. They're sad songs of wrestling with God, with why aren't you acting in the now? There's brokenness, there's suffering, there's injustice, there's turmoil, there's being ridiculed, there's betrayal, there's... You name every emotion, they're in the Psalms. And so we need the Psalms. What we need to remember here, that God did bring his people back to Jerusalem. There was this pagan king named Cyrus. God raised up this pagan king and he sent the people back to Jerusalem, actually even paid their way and provided security uh, for, for them on their way. And they rebuilt the temple, and they rebuilt the walls. And now the psalmist is praising God because the Lord builds up Jerusalem. 
He gathers the outcast of Israel. He has brought us back. He's restored our fortunes. And so when it's saying he heals the brokenhearted, he has healed us who were brokenhearted in Israel. We were a broken people, and he has bound up our wounds. God does restore fortunes in the now. And so this psalm is beginning and ending like the, like the ones we're all looking at. They're the hallelujah psalms. It begins with hallelujah. That's a corporate plural command to praise the Lord. That's Hebrew for praise the Lord, plural. And the psalmist tells us three times. You have three cycles of what you're to do and why, what you're to do and why, what you're to do and why. And so it begins in verse 1. What are you to do? Praise the Lord. Why? Well, that would be verses 2 to 6. And it will tell us again and again uh, who he is and how he's, he's doing these works that he's doing. And so we're told why we are to praise him and then how he takes care of us and his creation. And that's going to be repeated three times. So then in verse 7, you get another command. And it's now more specific. And we'll, we'll come back to verse 7. But now it's specifically telling you how you're to praise him. And then it's going to tell you why, verses 8 to 11. And then verse 12, we get another imperative, praise the Lord. And then it's going to tell you why, and he's going to show you how he cares for his creation. So that's where this psalm is going, okay? So we get these commands three different times, imperatives to praise the Lord, sing to him. Why? Well, if you look at this first section, not only does he, he builds up Jerusalem, he gathers the outcast of Israel, he heals the brokenhearted, he binds up their wounds, he determines the numbers of the stars. And we looked last week and we were talking about the stars and how we can't number them. We are just discovering now all of these galaxies through this telescope, this James Webb uh, telescope, that there's entire galaxies we've never seen before and lots and thousands and thousands of them. We can't even get our arms around the creation. And then what he's saying is, his understanding is beyond measure. It's beyond counting. It's the same word that's used at the beginning of verse four about the number of the stars, saying you can't even get your arms around the creation. And you think your understanding is gonna somehow get your arms around God? You know, I love, you know, I remember being in seminary for the first time and thinking about how big, you know, one of these professors was saying, you know, let's think about, you know, how much knowledge do you really think you have of the Bible? Like, how much of this Bible do you really think you really know? Like, come up with a percentage in your head, you know, like, what's your number? You know, how much of this Bible do you think you know? Like, 20%? You know, you're a 20 percenter, you're a 50 percenter. And say, then he says, oh, how much of God is revealed in this book? How much of God is revealed in this book? 5%? 2%? You know, so you start to get how big God really is. I mean, you can't even get your arms around the creation. He's revealed enough of this book that we would know him. But God is so much bigger than what, that he has to speak down to us so that we could understand. We're little children trying to grasp, you know, in incredibly difficult things. But we do get enough from this passage that we recognize that God is great, he's abundant in power, and his understanding is beyond anything that we can fathom. 
So think about this. This is from Stephen Charnock. He was a Puritan who wrote this great book on the attributes of God. And he just says this about the power of God. You think about his power. The power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever he pleases, whatsoever his wisdom may direct, and whatsoever is in the infinite purity of his will may resolve. As holiness is the beauty of all of God's attributes, so power is that which gives life and action to all the perfections of the divine nature. How vain would be the eternal counselors if power did not step in to execute them. Without power, his mercy would be but feeble pity, his promises an empty sound, his threatenings a mere scarecrow. God's power is like himself. It's infinite, eternal, incomprehensible. It can neither be checked, restrained, nor frustrated by the creature. And he just says he's abundant in power. So you're to say, great is the Lord, because our God is all-powerful. But then we see about his wisdom and his understanding, that we're told that his understanding is beyond measure. And that's where A.W. Pink just, he quotes this verse, Psalm 147.5, and then he says, God knows whatever has happened in the past in every part of his vast domains He's thoroughly acquainted with everything that now transpires throughout the whole entire universe. He's also perfectly cognizant with every event from the least to the greatest, that which will happen in ages to come. God's knowledge of the future is as complete as his knowledge of the past and the present because the future depends entirely upon himself. Were it any otherwise possible for something to occur apart from either the direct agency or permission of God, then that something would be independent of him and he would at once cease to be supreme. So when we say God, his, under, his understanding is beyond measure, what, what Pink is getting at, he says, he knows everything, everything possible and everything actual. All events, all creatures of the past, present, and future. He's perfectly acquainted with every detail in this life of every being in heaven, earth, and in hell. He knows what is in the darkness, Daniel 2.22. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing can be hidden from him. Nothing is forgotten by him. His knowledge is perfect. He never errs. He never changes. He never overlooks anything. So we can say, great is the Lord. And so what is our response? We are called to praise the Lord. We are made to praise him. Sometimes that kind of can get lost a little bit in translation. And that's where the classic quote by C.S. Lewis in his Word About Praise, in his book, The Reflection of the Psalms, many of you have heard this classic quote before, but he says this, the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. He says, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praise the most, while the cranks, the misfits, the malcontents praise least, except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. 
He said, I had not noticed that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist is telling everyone to praise God, is telling, telling everyone to praise God. They're doing what all men have always done when they speak of what they care about. So when you think, well, well God is just, you know, uh, if you're somehow thinking, you know, he's a megalomaniac and he just wants us to praise him like he's a woman that just constantly needs more compliments. He doesn't need those. He's not any more fuller or more complete as we would somehow, you know, complete him. He's fully complete. But we will be satisfied and we will become more like him as we see his glory. Because if we praise anything else and, and the glory in it, it would become an idol. Lewis says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, it completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. So the psalmist, that's why the psalmist is saying it's good. It's good to praise God. It's fitting. It befits the upright. It's comely. This is normal. This is expected. We find our calibration that's needed. We find this tuning of our instruments when we gather together. We never feel healthier. There's no object of praise like our God, and it's the best and healthiest. The best thing we could do would be to praise him. There was this guy named Henry Skugel. He was born in 1650. He died in 1677. He only lived to be 27 years old. He died of tuberculosis. And he wrote a book called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. And it greatly impacted a guy by the name of George Whitfield, who happened to change the world in the First Great Awakening. Whitfield was reading Skugel, and Skugel said this, his famous quote, is the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. He that loveth mean and sordid things, and when he says mean, he doesn't mean like, you know, mean, angry. He means mean like base, like shallow things. He that loveth mean and sordid things does become thereby base and vile, but a noble and well-placed affection does improve, advance and improve the spirit into a conformity with the perfections which it loves." The worth and excellency of a soul is measured by the object of his love. You get that? You want to know how much, you, what your soul is really, how is it doing? What does it love? Is it shriveling? What do you fixate on? What is your North Star? What do you daydream about? What do you long for the most? You see, worship of God is fitting because it expands our souls. It keeps our souls from shriveling and dying from worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And if we're not worshiping the Lord, we will worship. We, are, we worship every day. We're, we are constantly worshiping. So the question is, what are we worshiping? And the worth and excellency of souls to be measured by the object of its love. And so the, the natural tendency is to worship the creation rather than the creator. To focus on the things. To focus on this world and not to, to see the rainbow through the rain. To see God's hand behind it. And so we're called in this psalm 
to sing to the Lord with thanksgiving, make melody to, to our God on the lyre. So we're actually called, even if we can't sing very well, which I've come to learn that I can't, but do we sing? Well, there's actually a command here to use a musical instrument. When it's saying make melody to our God on the lyre, it's find an instrument, you know, use, there, there's an instrument, there was, a, there was a, a stringed instrument called the lyre. Why are we called to sing? I mean, I've had people over the years that they, they, you look out, they don't sing. They just don't sing, they don't like to sing, they don't like it, or they don't even want to come for the singing. What time's the preaching start? I just want to come for that. And then I realize they, they don't really get it. You see, the reason we're to sing, maybe we could go back and listen to what Edwards and Jonathan Edwards and Martin Luther say about singing. Let's hear this. Jonathan Edwards said this, the duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed holy to excite and express religious affections. No other reason can be assigned. Why should, we, why should we express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose and do it with music? But only that such is our nature and frame that these things have a tendency to move and express our affections. You see, music has a way of driving truth down deeper into the soul and moving the affections to give the adequate praise to God. Luther described it like this. Martin Luther said, music is a fair and lovely gift of God, which has often awakened and moved me to the joy of preaching. I have no use for cranks who despise music because it's the gift of God. Music drives away the devil and makes people happy and thereby forget and forget thereby all wrath, unchastity, arrogance, and the like. Next, after theology, I give to music the highest place and the greatest honor. I would not exchange what little I know of music for something great. Experience proves that next to the word of God, only music deserves to be extolled as the mistress and governor of the feelings of the human heart. We know that the devil music is distasteful and sufferable. My heart bubbles up and overflows in response to music which has so often refreshed me and delivered me from dire plagues. You see, Luther goes on in Lutheresque fashion, and he says this, a person who does not regard music as a marvelous creation of God does not deserve to be called a human being. He should be permitted to hear nothing but the braying of asses and the grunting of hogs. <laughs> Typical Luther, you know. But Luther was really quite an accomplished musician, which I didn't realize. He played two instruments primarily. He played the flute, the lute, and the lyre. And it was basically the flute and then the stringed instrument, or the flute and the, the lute were the two instruments that he played. He wrote over 37 hymns. He was huge into teaching. Uh, he wanted the children to learn how to sing. And he loved hearing the children sing, and he wanted them to learn. And, and for a minister to be competent, to be a minister, he had to learn music and had to learn how to sing. I wouldn't have done real well in the Luther school, but that was pretty, pretty important to him because he realized how important it was for his soul. And I can tell you, I can remember very distinctly after, during the pandemic, and hardly anybody was singing because it was just a few of us gathered. We couldn't meet. And then hearing, we weren't doing special music, and then to hear for the first time some of these voices that you hadn't heard, and to hear Jackie sing a solo, 
and then to hear Chrissy sing a solo, and it was like the first time you're hearing them sing again. It was just so beautiful. And there is something about doing this together, that you that are listening online, it's not worship, it's not the same. You're, you're fooling yourself to think that you can just sit home and, and do that. You need to be here with God's people. Listen, Martin Lloyd-Jones didn't even want to be recorded in his preaching. He didn't want to be recorded. You know why? Because he thought the thunder was, it, it was, it was in the delivery of with God's people because we're in corporate worship and there's something there in the worship that you don't get on the recording. And so Lloyd-Jones was, was not big into him being recorded. Can you imagine Lloyd-Jones living the day of like, you know, live streaming worship service when he knew that the power was in the corporate gathering of his people? There's something to that. We need that. It's healthy. We're to sing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spirit. We need to hear your voices. You need to hear ours. And you can't do that at home. You see, there's something beautiful about that. And so the psalmist is bringing this home to us. And, and, and if you look at verse 13 to 20, and you get this connection where the psalmist is, is telling us, you know, we're to sing to the Lord and, and telling us why he does all of the things that he does. He cares for his creation. But then when you get to 13 to 20, you have this emphasis on the word of God. Do you see that? Look, look at verse 15. And, and he says, he sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool, he scatters hoarfrost like ashes, he hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes the wind blow and waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He's not dealt thus with any other nations. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. You see, what the psalmist is doing, he's drawing a correlation. This is, this is quoting from John Frame in his Systematic Theology. He quotes this very passage and he says, the psalmist draws a correlation between a command and word that control the course of nature and the word that God revealed to Israel. The words came from the same mouth. They have the same power, the same truth, and they reveal the same God. And so God can speak and, and, and create the world and, and, and create the universe, but he also speaks providentially and orders all of these things to happen, all of these animals, even animals like ravens, which were forbidden. Uh, that would have been something unclean to the Israelites, and God is saying, well, I take care of them. He's bringing all these things about, even the cold and the ice and the frost and all of these things come because God is commanding them. And so what Frame is getting at is there's, that when he speaks about God's sovereignty or God being Lord, the, to be Lord, you have to have three things Frame talks about, control, authority, and presence. And what this psalm is bringing out is there is a relationship between control and authority. And Frame says, control means that God has the power to direct the whole course of nature of history as he pleases, because he's in control. But authority means he has the right to do it. You see, the relation between control and authority is might and right. He has all might, he's all powerful, but he also has the right. And if he has the right, what does that mean to us? He's telling us what we ought to do. 
And when God issues a command, he's supremely right in doing it. And so his word creates an obligation for us to obey. When he makes promises, we can trust them without question because they're infallibly right and true. They've never been wrong. They've never erred. They've never exaggerated. He's perfect in his knowledge. And he has the right because he's made the owner. He owns all things. And so for us to complain would be a potter, uh, the clay complaining to the potter, why did you make me like this? That would be kind of, how, how can a, something formed, you know, like a piece of pottery, complain to the potter? And yet we do that. And so part of our worship is to not quarrel with him. And so that's part of what we were wrestling with today was Habakkuk is initially complaining, but at the end you get to this incredible confession of beautiful worship that though everything doesn't, seems like it's terrible, the olive tree isn't, you know, there's nothing, there's no cattle in the stalls, there's nothing is looking good, yet I'm gonna praise him. He enables me to go on to the heights, he's gonna praise him regardless. And how do we do that? Well. One of the things in just reading C.S. Lewis and his reflection on the Psalms, he talks about, you know, you read the Psalms and you, and you read about all these Psalms of, of, you see like the psalmist is suffering and you have these suffering type of Psalms. But then you have these kingship Psalms where you have this king who's in charge and he's ruling over everything. And then you kind of come to this realization that, wait a minute, Jesus is both. How can this also be true about Jesus? Where's Jesus in Psalm 147? Well, he's both. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Who's the most brokenhearted person in the Bible? What's Psalm 69 say? That would be Jesus. Who's the one who's broken on a cross? Who has wounds? like Jesus, for our sins. And it's his wounds that bring about our healing. So he is the one that is the sufferer. He's suffered on our behalf, but he's also the king, you see? And now he's rewriting our stories. And so we can praise him that he's both. He's the sufferer and he's also the king, even as we sung about that this morning. I've been reading a book this week on anxiety um, and I can't even think of the title. I left the book in the high school room. Um, but it, the, the, just the book on anxiety was so helpful because I was really surprised how much it actually talked about the resurrection. Like daily anxiety being cured by the resurrection. And for this fellow that uh, has suffered with anxiety all his life, he was a latchkey kid, and he would come home and he would just fear that somebody was gonna be in his house. And he was afraid to go in, because he'd be there alone. And then when he was in the house, he was afraid his parents weren't gonna come home that night. And so he would call the, his mom's work every day and find out when are you gonna be home, because he was, and he would figure it out in his head when they're gonna be home, but the dread was, what if they don't come home? And he was always a fear of what he was gonna lose, what he was gonna lose, but what he finally got the big rock in of the resurrection, he realized, I'm not gonna lose them. I may lose them for a little time, but I get them back. You see? It, it, it changed his worldview. And he, and he talked about this concept that I thought was really helpful, and it was the concept of the through line. 
And he says, in the world of drama or method acting, you'll hear about the concept of through line. And he talks about this one particular person, Constantine Stanislavski, who I've never heard of, says this, actors should not only understand what their character was doing or trying to do in any given unit, but should also strive to understand the through line which link these objectives together and thus push the character forward through the narrative. If the character is good, we know they're good because they're, they're so believable in the through line. And they stay true and they convey passionately and accurately the through line. And he gives an example. He says, look, Lord of the Rings. A key through line is that the hobbits have this incredible desire to return to the Shire. And if the Lord of the Rings ended with the hobbits never returning to the Shire, but instead opening a bed and breakfast in Mordor, the story would seem utterly incoherent. Don't you get it? The Shire is Eden. You're going to get back to the Shire. You're getting through the through line. Are you experiencing the through line as you worship? That there's saints who've gone before us, but we're going to be reunited with them. The through line is that this world is our home. It is. It's just not yet. The meek will inherit the earth. What you lose now, it is going to be restored. You're not going to be floating on some harp somewhere. We're going to return here to this world. And the emphasis of the resurrection is, is true, and that's what gives us hope. So we can answer the question of the, of the song that was sung back in the late 60s and the big melody of what becomes of the brokenhearted. And if you ever listen to that song, it is terribly depressing. You read those lyrics and it's, it's like, is this guy going to take his life? Because he, he doesn't have an answer. What becomes of the brokenhearted? Well, the scriptures have an answer. Here's what God has said is going to happen to the brokenhearted. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 147.3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Binds up their wounds. How does he do that? Well, he sent his son. And his son came and said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they might be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That's what becomes of the brokenhearted. Do you see the through line? He's not done yet. We got to play our part. We, we're, we're, we're real actors. It's not, it's not fake. It's real. We have a part to play. So let's play it. And let's keep writing tunes, singing to the Lord, and making melody, and praising our God. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us as we so often forget these fundamentals. Teach us, even today, this week, how to sing to you. Even the sad songs.
for those that are sorrowful and hurting, heal the brokenhearted. Save those that are crushed in spirit. Restore our fortunes. Fill us with hope. Help us to see the through line of the Bible and how our Lord Jesus has broken through, and so shall we. We thank you this very day in Jesus' name. Amen.